Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Evil Olive, the tragic murder of James Byrd Jr. Today's episode deals with racial hatred, violence, and murder. Listener discretion is highly advised, for it will not be suitable for all listeners. Everyone took their seats in the pews, and Reverend Lyons opened his sermon with the tragic news about the black man that was savagely murdered in their own town. Not many details were given, but James Sr. and his wife Stella prayed with their congregation for the man and his family. After the service, James Sr. and Stella returned home to enjoy their afternoon and invited their older children to come and enjoy a Sunday dinner. The first to arrive was their daughter, Betty Boatner. She joined her mother and father, and the smell of the Sunday food that was cooking in the kitchen was in the air. Not long after her arrival, a knock was heard from the front door. It was Sheriff Billy Rolls, wearing his large Texas hat, and Sergeant James Carter. Billy, although a white man, was paler than normal, and Carter, a black man, was multiple shades lighter in his face. They entered the bird home and told James Sr. and Stella that their son, James Bird Jr., was positively identified as the man that was killed on Huff Creek Road that morning. The Jewel of the Forest, that is what Jasper, Texas is called. Located in East Texas, it is a place of community and beauty. Jasper is surrounded by pines and forests and has lakes and rivers. Looking online, it is easy to see why it is called the Jewel of the Forest, for the pictures are breathtaking and show the wonder and beauty Jasper has to offer. Jasper is situated about 130 miles northeast of Houston, Texas, and has also been called the Butterfly Capital of Texas because of the annual Butterfly Festival it holds each fall for the monarch butterfly migration. Although it is a small town with a population of nearly 8,000 people, the people there have big hearts and love their community. They go to church services together. They share in barbecues and birthdays and are in some way connected to each other by intersecting lives, families, or friends. The small 10 square mile town of Jasper is peaceful and the quality of life is good. No one ever thought a place called the Jewel of the Forest could be the place of something so sinister. The Bird family was part of the Jasper community and knew it was a great place to raise a family. James Sr. was a deacon in the church and his wife Stella was a Sunday school teacher. The Birds raised their family in and around the church and showed them that when God is accepted into your life, anything is possible. They had eight children, and James Bird Jr. was the third oldest. He was born on May 2, 1949. He was a happy child and played with his siblings and joined his parents at church all the time. James Jr. was smart academically and had good grades when he was in school. He was also a gifted musician. Anywhere he went, he always sang songs, either from church or from the radio. He could also play the piano, and everywhere he went, he was always singing. James Jr. graduated from J.H. Rowe High School in 1967 
and was part of the last graduating class that was segregated. The next year, desegregation took place and J.H. Rowe High School was consolidated with Jasper High School. James Jr.'s two older sisters had gone off to college and his parents wanted the same for him. Unfortunately, James Jr. never went to college, but he did fall in love. By 1970, James Jr. was married and had three children. They were named Renee, Ross, and Jamie. Throughout this time, he worked odd jobs and was a vacuum salesman. However, alcoholism started to take over his life. James Jr. started to have more run-ins with the law. He was charged with forgery, theft, and parole violations. By 1993, he and his wife divorced. By 1996, James Bird Jr. wanted to change his life and do better for his family and children. He started to attend Alcoholics Anonymous. He was still known amongst his friends and family as a happy person who still loved to sing. He was liked by those who knew him, and they all stated that he was a musically talented individual. Like all recovering addicts or alcoholics, James Jr. relapsed and would drink on and off. He still tried his hardest to be a better person. Although he would relapse, he was not violent or mean. Alcohol would just get the best of him sometimes. On Saturday, June 6, 1998, Jimmy Mays, a friend of James Bird Jr., was having a birthday party for his son, and it was also his wedding anniversary. Dozens of friends and family came to join in the celebrations and festivities, along with James Jr. There was food, music, dancing, and laughter, and it was heard all throughout the party. People were playing dominoes, playing cards, and telling jokes while enjoying each other's company. There were no fights, arguments, or drama. It was just a good old-fashioned barbecue equipped with drinks and fun. But like all good things must come to an end, so did the party that Jimmy had. By one in the morning on June 7th, James Jr. left the party along with several other attendees. James Jr. did not have a vehicle, so he started to walk home. It was obvious that James Jr. had been drinking because he was stumbling on the road. While others who were leaving the party in their cars to drive home, they passed James Jr. on the road and can see that he was visibly drunk. However, this did not face the drivers because James Jr. walked everywhere, and he had been drunk before. They knew he was going to make it home. Another person, an 18-year-old named Stephen Scott, was driving home, and also saw James Jr. on the road walking in a zigzag line. He could tell he had been drinking, but Scott knew who James Jr. was, and was going to offer him a ride home but he did not want to be late for his curfew. Therefore, Scott passed James Jr. and continued to drive home. Moments later, when Scott was driving, he saw a stepside truck zoom past him and he saw James Jr. riding in the back of it. There were three males in the cab of the truck and James Jr. was in the back. Scott made his turn to go home and didn't give it another thought. The next morning on June 7, 1998, was like any normal day in Jasper, Texas. James Bird Sr. and his wife Stella woke up early that Sunday morning and got ready for church. In the background, a local news station could be heard throughout the house. The news reported that a black man had been killed in Jasper. James Sr. and Stella were saddened by the news, but proceeded to finish getting ready for church. 
They both arrived at the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church to enjoy a Sunday service. As they entered, they could see their congregation was somber and sad. They all too had heard the news of the black man that was killed. Everyone took their seats in the pews, and Reverend Lyons opened up his sermon with the tragic news about the black man that was savagely murdered. Not many details were given, but James Sr. and his wife Stella prayed with their congregation for the man and his family. After the service, James Sr. and Stella returned home to enjoy their afternoon and invited their older children to come and enjoy a Sunday dinner at their house. The first to arrive was their daughter, Betty Boatner. She joined her mother and father in the kitchen and the smell of Sunday food was in the air. As the Bird family patiently waited for their son and brother, James Jr., to arrive, they heard a knock coming from the front door. It was Sheriff Billy Rolls wearing his large Texas hat and Sergeant James Carter. They entered the Bird home slowly and gracefully. They saw they were cooking food and about to have a family dinner. There was no easy way to break the news. Sheriff Billy Rolls looked at James Sr. and Stella and told them that their son, James Bird Jr., had been positively identified as the man that was killed on Huff Creek Road that morning. Sheriff Billy Rolls was on his way that morning to play golf. As he drove to the golf course in his pickup truck, he heard a voice on the two-way radio that said they found a black man's body in the middle of the road on Huff Creek. Without hesitation, Sheriff Rolls turned around and headed to the scene of the crime. As he pulled up to the Huff Creek Road, he could see that there were multiple police cars and crime scene tape. Rolls went up to Sergeant James Carter, the only black man in the Sheriff's Department, and Carter explained to Rolls what they had found. It was a disfigured body of a black man in the middle of the road. Rolls decided to walk through the scene himself and was horrified by what he saw. Initially, when Rolls got there, he thought it could be a hit-and-run situation, but quickly realized that the scene he was looking at was telling a far worse story than he ever could have imagined. As he looked at the streak on the ground in the middle of the road, he saw it went for almost three miles. He walked next to the streak and noticed that it was dried blood and there were pieces of flesh. Sheriff Rolls was stunned by what he saw, but duty called. He continued to walk the Huff Creek Road. As he looked around, he saw multiple pieces of evidence, pieces of a puzzle. There were keys, a baseball hat, a wallet, dentures, and a watch scattered all along the road. He found a lighter with the word possum and KKK engraved on it, and a nut wrench with the name Barry carved on it. There were multiple beer bottles and cigarette butts everywhere. To mark the evidence and where each piece lay, investigators used red spray paint to draw circles around each piece. In total, there were over 70 circles on the three-mile stretch of road. Sheriff Rolls continued to walk the dark streak that stained the road, and he saw he was getting closer to the body. He could not believe what he found. There in the middle of Huff Creek Road was the body of a badly disfigured man, and at the edge of the road where the body lay was a culvert, and next to it was the head of the man. Sheriff Rolls was shaken to his core. He had never seen anything like this in all of his years of being sheriff. Yes, he had dealt with murders. Two, in fact. But this was entirely different. This was something out of this world and something he never wanted to encounter. Tommy Robinson, a senior investigator, 
came to take photos of the body, crime scene, and the evidence that laid motionless and lifeless on Huff Creek Road. He took photos of the man's dentures, a shoe, keys, a can of fix-a-flat, and multiple other items that would be used to piece together this horrific and unspeakable act. Sheriff Rolls walked back to the start of the crime scene and looked in the wallet that was found on the road. Inside was the ID of a man named James Bird Jr. Sheriff Rolls wanted to be 100% certain that this was in fact James Bird Jr. So he had the body identified by fingerprints. Sadly, they came back and the body was positively identified as James Bird Jr. After Sheriff Rolls and Sergeant Carter told the Bird family about the murder of their son and their brother, they wasted no time in finding out who the suspects were. Sheriff Rolls left back to the station to discuss the murder and any known felons or violent people in the area. It was at that moment that Sheriff Billy Rolls knew that he was in over his head. He knew that this was a hate crime committed against a black man and did not want anyone to question the integrity of the evidence he and his team collected. Therefore, he phoned the FBI for assistance. Some were unhappy with Sheriff Rolls' decision, but he did not care. He wanted to make sure that the murder and hate crime was processed correctly and to the full extent of the law. As it was Sunday, that meant there was going to be many people out and about going to and from church, and there would be a heavy presence of people. The department sealed off the entire crime scene and started to go over what they saw and what they found. They remembered the name Barry was written on a nut wrench, and everyone in town knew who the Barry brothers were. There was Louis Barry and Sean Barry, but they could not believe that they would be capable of such a crime. They were rowdy boys sometimes, but they were not killers. They continued to pour over the evidence until they received an unexpected call from a witness. Stephen Scott had heard about what happened to James Bird Jr. that day and remembered seeing him stumbling in the road as he drove home the prior night. Scott went to the sheriff's office and told him what he saw. The description of the pickup truck matched the one the Barry brothers drove, a 1982 beat-up pickup truck. But still at this point, all the evidence was circumstantial. Sergeant Carter found a receipt from a local store in the wallet of James Jr. He went to the store to look at the surveillance footage, and it gave him chills. There in the footage was the man that he knew growing up since he was a child. It was James Bird Jr. walking and alive, but now he lay dead in the road with a mangled body. Investigators continued to search and follow up on leads. They had people in mind, but no solid evidence. That was until that evening. Around 8 p.m. on Sunday, June 7, 1998, 12 hours after the body of James Bird Jr. was found, Sean Barry was pulled over in his truck for expired tags. Officer Larry Pulliam pulled Sean Barry over and asked to see his license. When inspecting the license, he saw that the license was expired as well, and Sean Barry had no proof of insurance. This was enough to place Barry under arrest. Pulliam was aware of what happened to James Bird Jr. and the name Barry engraved on the nut wrench that was found at the crime scene. It was at that moment he knew that something was off. He placed Sean Barry under arrest and placed him in the back of his car. Moments later, multiple officers arrived on the scene and Sean Barry knew it had nothing to do with his expired tags, expired license, or no proof of insurance. Barry's truck was released to the officers and he went without a fight. 
Sean Berry was placed in the Jasper County Jail. Before the truck was inspected and searched, investigators wanted to be sure it was the same truck that Stephen Scott saw the previous night. They called him in, and when he arrived, he saw the pickup, and indeed confirmed it was the same truck. Investigator Curtis Frame and Jasper Police Officer Richard Ford knew they had to talk with Barry about what happened the night before. But Barry said very little. Ford and Frame read Barry his rights, and Barry granted them permission to search his truck. Barry lived in Jasper in an apartment with a man named John William King, who also went by the name Bill. Police were dispatched to the apartment to conduct surveillance until further notice. As 23-year-old Sean Barry sat in a cell, Ford and Frame inspected the pickup truck and found more evidence that told a chilling account of the malevolent acts that took place the night before. As they peered their heads underneath the 1982 stepside pickup truck, they found blood spots and pieces of human flesh stuck in the chassis. Immediately, Frame carefully collected the samples and set them aside for later examination and forensic testing. There was dirt and vegetation on the truck that was indicative of the truck being on Huff Creek Road recently. That was not all Frame and Ford found. Both men found a toolbox in the pickup, and inside of it contained dozens of tools. Normally this would not be suspicious, but the tools had the name Barry carved into them. At that moment, both men realized that Sean Barry was now their prime suspect in the murder of James Byrd Jr., Shortly after the evidence was found on Barry's pickup, the surveilling officers were told to bring in King for questioning. With King was his friend Lawrence Brewer, who was King's jailhouse buddy when he was in prison and had been with him the night before with Sean Barry. Brewer was asked to be brought in for questioning as well. When the officers asked King and Brewer to go with them, They both agreed and went freely. The officers also asked for consent to search King and Barry's apartment, and King agreed to let them search. In the apartment, the officers found stolen items and other evidence that pointed to King being a racist. They collected it and brought both King and Brewer back to the station. John William King, or Bill, was known in the area by police and the sheriff's department. He had committed burglaries and theft and was a hothead, but they knew absolutely nothing about Lawrence Brewer, the friend that was with him. After running a background check, Brewer was not from Jasper. They found out he was from Sulphur Springs, Texas, and both he and King were in prison in Beto together, and were both released in 1997. King was 23 and Brewer was 31. Beto was not an easy place to be imprisoned, especially if you were young. The inmates at the prison would terrorize newcomers, and if you did not establish yourself quickly in the prison, you would be beaten, forced to give your money, or even be forced to commit sexual favors just to survive. In Beto is where both King and Brewer first met. They both had extremely vulgar and racist tattoos that depicted racial acts of violence towards Jewish people and people of color. After King and Brewer were brought in for questioning, they were uncooperative with the investigators. Sheriff Billy Rolls called the district attorney for Jasper, Guy James Gray, and told him that Barry, Brewer, and King were in custody, and he needed help getting a confession out of the men. Sheriff Rolls could only hold King for the stolen possessions found in his apartment, unless they could get other evidence or a confession from him. Frame and Ford tried their best to talk with King and Brewer, but it was no use. 
they weren't talking. The department had been working nearly 17 hours since the discovery of James Bird Jr.'s body, and they were losing their patience with the three individuals. King and Brewer weren't talking, but Sheriff Rolls knew he could break Barry. He was not a vicious kid, and Rolls could see he wanted to get something off his chest. When Barry was questioned again, he started to tremble and was visibly scared. Barry calmed his nerves and told Gray and Rolls his accounts of what happened that night. He started from the beginning. On Saturday, June 6, 1998, around 11 p.m., King and Brewer ran into one of King's old flames, Keisha Adkins. After catching up and chatting, Adkins agreed to go back to King's apartment to have a drink and hang out. When they arrived, King showed Adkins all of his vulgar and racist tattoos, and she was not impressed. But they continued to drink and ended up going into the bedroom to have sex. King made Brewer watch at the front door for King's girlfriend. Kylie Greeny, who was King's very pregnant girlfriend, did in fact show up to the apartment, but Brewer refused to let her in. Eventually, Greeny left out of anger. It was just after midnight when Barry got home to the apartment and saw Adkins, Brewer, and King all drinking and hanging out. Barry worked at the theater in town and had just gotten off of his shift. Shortly after arriving home, King walked Adkins to her car and she left. Brewer, King, and Barry decided to fill a cooler full of beer and drive around town in Barry's pickup truck. They initially went to a house party but left. They decided to drive around and drink some more. As they were driving around, they spotted James Bird Jr. stumbling in the road and Barry pulled up to him and asked him if he needed a ride home. King was furious that Barry offered a black man a ride, but Barry knew James Jr., just like everyone did. He was a local and he always walked everywhere. James Jr. and Barry also shared the same parole officer at one time. James Bird Jr. recognized the friendly face of Sean Barry and accepted the ride, but stated he didn't want to go home. He'd rather hang out with them for a little while longer. Bird climbed into the back of the truck and drove off with Barry, King, and Brewer. One of the three men offered Bird a beard, and he gladly accepted. Barry continued to drive around with King and Brewer in the cab and Bird riding in the back. They stopped by a convenience store to go to the bathroom. When finished, King and Brewer offered to let Bird sit in the cab with Barry as they continued to drive around, and Bird happily accepted the offer. Nothing happened between the men and Bird. He was quiet, Barry offered him a cigarette, and Bird had one. Barry took a turn and started to head off the road, down an old logging road. James Bird Jr. was confused and asked where they were going, and Barry stated that they were just riding around. The woods got thicker, the town's lights were no longer to be seen, and everywhere James Bird Jr. looked, he found himself in the darkness, alone with three men. Suddenly, King yelled to stop the truck. Barry did as he was told, as King was the more dominant one in their friendship. Barry stopped the truck. When the truck stopped, Brewer and King jumped from the bed of the truck and opened the passenger door and violently pulled James Bird Jr. from it. It took all their strength to pull Bird out, as he was not going to go down without a fight. He did not know what was happening to him. One moment he was riding and drinking and having a cigarette, and suddenly he's being pulled from the truck. Bird was just shy of six feet tall 
and weighed only 160 pounds. He fought with everything he had to stay in that truck, but it was no use. King and Barry managed to get him out of the truck and threw him to the ground. Bird knew he was in for the fight of his life. James Bird Jr. suffered from chronic arthritis, but he fought with everything he had. Brewer and King punched him, kicked him, and beat him while he laid on the ground. But Bird continued to fight with everything he had. Barry jumped out of the truck to see what was going on and stated that he made some attempt to stop the beating, but was too frightened by King and Brewer. Bird was yelling and pleading with God for this to stop. He was asking for mercy from the men, but they heard nothing but the sounds of their own vicious attack. At this moment, Barry became so frightened, he wet his pants. During the beating, King's lighter flew out of his pocket, James Bird Jr.'s hat went flying off of his head, and in the middle of a struggle, somehow the nut wrench was dropped on the ground. After countless blows to Bird's body, by hand and foot, Brewer was not satisfied. He went to the truck and grabbed a can of spray paint and sprayed it in Bird's face, instantly blinding him. Brewer stated that he sprayed him in the face because he hurt his foot while kicking Bird. Bird laid there helpless and beaten in the middle of the road. I would like to take a moment to warn our listeners that the next part is highly gruesome and it is not suitable for all listeners. Please, if you are uncomfortable with the following details of the case, fast forward. Although Bird laid in the middle of the road unconscious at this point, King and Brewer were not satisfied. They went to the back of Barry's pickup truck and grabbed a 25-foot old rusty logging chain. King and Brewer pulled James Bird Jr.'s pants down and his underwear to his ankles. They took the large rusty chain and wrapped it around Bird's ankles. Then, with the other end of the chain, they attached it to the hitch of the pickup truck. While James Bird Jr. laid there, King got into the driver's seat, Barry into the middle, and Brewer got into the passenger seat. King stated, This is what happened to black people in the old days when they messed with white women. Moments later, the gas was pressed, and the unthinkable happened. While alive, James Bird Jr. was dragged behind the truck with the three white men driving it. His screams echoed in the piney woods, but no one could hear him. With every turn, his body was swung back and forth across the pavement. He used his elbows as leverage to keep his head off the ground. At one point, he slipped out of the chain. But King and Brewer quickly backed up and ended up backing up over James Bird Jr.'s broken body. They put the car forward again and ran him over, not once but twice. They put the chain back around his ankles, which were bloodied, and lacerated to the bone. King climbed back up into the driver's seat and Brewer into the passenger, and they started on their drive again. Bird was dragged through dirt, rocks, asphalt, and trees. King made a turn off the logging road onto Huff Creek Road, which was paved with asphalt and pushed the gas. At this point, James Bird Jr. could not scream. His face was so injured he wasn't able to. He continued to use his knees and elbows to keep his head from hitting the ground. King drove the car from side to side, yelling comments, saying racial hatred slurs, and laughing along with Brewer. 
James Byrd Jr. was swung so far to the side of the road that his body hit a culvert that decapitated his head from his body and took off one of his arms. But this still did not stop King and Brewer. They continued to drag Bird's body further down Huff Creek Road. And parts of Bird's body were ripped from him and strewn throughout the Huff Creek Road. King and Brewer finally released Bird's body from his chains and left him in front of a black cemetery near a church. The head was nowhere to be found. Many black people on their way to church that day walked the same road that James Bird Jr. had just been dragged down. They saw the lifeless, beaten, and broken body in front of their church, and to them it was a sign. A sign that one of them could be next. King, Brewer, and Barry returned to the apartment, and talks of an alibi were already in place. Throughout the day, Barry went to work and was skittish around those he knew. King and Brewer acted as if nothing happened. After Barry told the story of what happened, Rolls and Gray were shocked. They knew that the confession given did not implicate Barry at all. They knew that he could have stopped it or went to the police, but he didn't. His confession was flawed, but it was the confession they needed to arrest all three of them for the murder of James Byrd Jr. 23-year-old John King, 31-year-old Lawrence Brewer, and 23-year-old Sean Barry were arraigned three days later and charged with the murder of James Byrd Jr., All three men requested attorneys, but none would step up to help. The once eager attorneys who volunteered in Jasper to represent criminals were nowhere to be found. They heard the details of the case and were sickened by it. Judge Bob Golden, however, was able to find attorneys for the men, and the accused gained representation. Wanting to keep much of the information out of the press, Sheriff Rolls told the media that it was an isolated incident and they were working through the case. But the media soon found out about King's hatred and racist comments regarding people of color and Jewish people. It was also found out that King had ties with the Confederate Knights of America, a white supremacist group he joined while in prison at Beto. Authorities photographed all three men's tattoos, measured their feet, took blood samples, and provided it all to the DA for evidence. They were transferred to the Texas State Prison to await their trials. It did not take long for the news to reach the entire nation of what happened to James Byrd Jr. The once small, quiet, peaceful town of Jasper, Texas was now center stage in the nation for a racist hate crime. This was not what they wanted their community to be. They were disgusted and saddened that these three men not only murdered a black man, but turned their peaceful town into a media circus. Three weeks after the murder of James Byrd Jr., the town erupted into chaos. Dozens of KKK members showed up in hoods to protest and the Black Muslims of Houston and the new Black Panthers showed up to protest as well. Both sides of the protesters tried to break through police lines to fight, but were unsuccessful. Many townspeople were angry that both groups were there. They did not want nor need their help. They wanted the law to serve justice, not vigilantes. The KKK were there to protect the white people from black retaliation, and the Black Panthers were there to protect black people from white racists. The majority of the residents in Jasper begged the members of the two groups to just leave. They wanted to keep their town calm. They were already suffering a tragic event and did not want any more tragedies to take place. 
Many told both sides to look to the Bible and to God for guidance instead of inciting riots and violence. They believed that God would prevail and justice would be served. Tensions continued to rise, people were angry, and many were extremely hurt. But the community stayed strong with one another. Black and whites prayed to honor James Byrd Jr. and condemned the gruesome act he endured that summer night. The community was hurting, but were healing with each day, with each other. Even James Byrd Sr. and his wife Stella said, they did not hate the men who did this to their son. They were angry and hurt, but they had no room in their hearts for hate, as that is not the way God preaches in the Bible. They just wanted justice. Whatever that may be, in the eyes of the law, they would accept it and move on together as a family. Nearly a year and a half later, on February 16, 1999, 14 jurors made up of 13 white men and women and one black man were escorted into the courtroom and sworn in. The trial of John William King was now underway. The state called many witnesses, one of the first being Sheriff Billy Rolls. When questioned, he gave his account of what he found and saw on the morning of Sunday, June 7, 1998. He stated that his deputies and officers found the head of James Bird Jr., and the body was in the road. He had been decapitated by a culvert that was on the side of the road. He was questioned about all the evidence he found and collected from the nut wrench, shoes, dentures, and much more. He and others were forced to relive that day, a day he dreaded and never wanted to think about again. Many from the Bird family could not listen to the testimony and abruptly left the courtroom to compose themselves. Prosecutor Guy James Gray told the jurors that they are going to see pictures that are going to be hard to look at, but it is necessary to get the full picture of what King did to James Bird Jr. The defense objected, but it was overruled. All 14 jurors were given a black folder that contained evidence photos and crime scene photos. As they flipped through page after page, they tried to hold their emotions, but it was written on their faces as a tombstone has engravings. It was unmistakable how appalled the jurors were at the photos that they were seeing for the first time. But the prosecutors did not show the photos in open court to everyone. It was just the jurors. More witnesses were called to discuss the racist and incriminating evidence found in the apartment that was shared by Barry and King. Testimony was given by inmates from Beto Prison that King knew and had connections with. King's pregnant girlfriend, Greeny, was also called to testify. So was Adkins, the girl he slept with the night of the murder. But nothing was more riveting than the testimony of Dr. Brown a forensic pathologist for the state. As the jurors were looking through the pictures, Dr. Brown explained what each picture was. He explained that the cheek of James Bird Jr. was completely exposed to the inner of the mouth, and you could see that the dentures of 49-year-old James Bird Jr. were missing. There were cuts, lacerations, and deep abrasions all over the body. Dr. Brown testified that James Bird Jr. was alive and conscious for the entire dragging. He confirms this by showing the differences between pre- and post-mortem bruising and wounds. Again, family members and friends excuse themselves from the courtroom 
as they just could not hear the information, and it was too much to handle. Dr. Brown continued and stated that Bird was alive until his head was severed from his body. That meant he was dragged for over three miles, alive, feeling everything. After this testimony, the prosecution played an 11-minute homemade video of the path that King, Barry, and Brewer took that night while Bird was chained to the back of the pickup truck. The video showed a truck similar to that of the one Barry was driving that night, and a replica 25-foot chain was put on the back of the hitch and dragged for the same amount of time that James Bird Jr. was. At the end of the video, the truck stops at an eerie point. It is at the place in the road where the culvert was, and still is. It was the place that ultimately killed James Bird Jr. Everyone in the courtroom was solemn and quiet. The video was eerie, as it took jurors on the same violent road that James Bird suffered that night. Seven days later, both sides gave their closing arguments. In the book, Hate Crime, A Dragging and Jasper, prosecuting attorney James Gray said, quote, Bird was killed by three robed riders coming straight out of hell. Instead of a rope, they used a chain. Instead of a horse, they used a pickup. End quote. Not much was needed to be said after that. The defense knew that their only option was to try and save their client's life from death. As this was a capital murder case and the death penalty was on the table but it was in the hands of the jurors. The jurors were released to deliberate, and deliberations only took two and a half hours. The jurors were ushered back into the courtroom, and they selected the one black man to be the foreman. The verdict was handed to the bailiff and read aloud by the judge. John William King was found guilty of capital murder. King showed no emotion or any remorse. He stared blankly ahead and gazed. It was a verdict almost all had been wanting and waiting for. Now that King was found guilty, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, had to prove if King, if to get life in prison, would be a danger to any black inmates. Both sides called psychologists to testify, and it was determined that King would in fact be a danger and be a threat. One of the psychologists that testified stated that King showed no remorse or regret for what he had done to James Bird Jr. He stated that he would have gone down in history for what he had done and was proud of it. Ronald King, John King's father, was called to testify and pleaded for his son's life. Although he was angry at what his son did, it was nonetheless his son, and he loved him and didn't want him to die. As Ronald King, the frail and old man in a wheelchair, left the stand, Renee Mullins, the oldest daughter of James Bird Jr., reached over and gave him a warm hug. Ronald King cried out and said, quote, Oh God, thank you. End quote. The Bird family knew it was not the father's fault for what his son had done. They were passionate enough to understand that this man was too possibly going to lose a son. Even the sister of James Bird Jr., Betty Boatner, offered her sympathies 
and told Roland King, quote, He was in the hands of God now. End quote. The jurors left to deliberate, and less than three hours later, they reached their decision. John William King was to be sentenced to death by lethal injection. Although the verdict brought justice to the Bird family, it did not bring their son, father, and brother back. They could appreciate the history of the justice that was made that day. King was the first white man in 150 years to be executed for killing a black man. The last time was in 1854, when a white man killed another man's prized slave and was executed for it. Ironically, King was sent and processed to the James Bird Diagnostic Unit to await his execution. Although the unit was not named after James Bird Jr., but by a warden with the same name, it showed how justice can be served in multiple ways. On Monday, September 13, 1999, the trial of Lawrence Brewer began. Judge Monty Lawless presided and the jurors were made up of seven men and five women. The prosecuting attorney, the same in the King trial, Guy James Gray, went through the same opening statements that he did. He brought in the same people for testimony, along with others, and showed the jurors the same black folders containing the gruesome photos of James Bird Jr., as well as the homemade 11-minute videotape. It was deja vu for many who attended the second trial. The jury found out that Brewer was part of the Confederate Knights of America, just like King, and there was no sympathy for him. The defense tried to paint their client as a broken person who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but the jury did not buy it. During cross-examination, Gray brought out the 25-foot chain and sprawled it across the courtroom. And with every clink of the chain, the sound sent chills up everyone's spine. After the trial ended, the jurors found Brewer guilty of capital murder and sentenced him to death by lethal injection. Brewer's mother was in the courtroom when she heard the verdict, and she wiped tears away from her face. No one was cheering in the courtroom. The family was happy justice was served, but they understood another mother was losing a son as well, just as Roland King lost his son in the last trial. At that point, many felt nothing and wanted it to be over. They were numb. Brewer was taken away and sent to await his execution. On November 10th, 1999, Sean Barry's trial began. Once again, the same evidence in the previous two trials was brought in, along with many of the same witnesses. The photos, the video, it was all deja vu. However, Many felt something different in the air at the Barry trial. Barry, although still a part of the atrocities that took place on June 7th, was unlike his co-defendants. He was well-spoken, had a soft, likable face, and was seen as a person who was possibly in the wrong place at the wrong time. That was until the prosecution stated that if he knew it was wrong, why wouldn't he have stopped it? He had multiple opportunities to come forward, but he didn't. He was too late to show that he cared about what happened to James Bird Jr., and his actions proved it, and the jurors knew that as well. A psychologist did give testimony on behalf of the defense and stated that Barry was remorseful for what happened to James Bird Jr., and that he was not a racist. But was it enough? to save his life from execution. 
By November 17th, closing arguments were given, and the jury was excused to deliberate on the fate of Sean Barry. They did not come back with a verdict until two days later. Sean Barry was found guilty of capital murder. Everyone again in the courtroom was numb, but a sigh of relief could be heard. The jury was once again dismissed to deliberate on the punishment for the crime. Would Sean Barry be executed or spend life in prison? After an hour of deliberations, the jury came back with the verdict of life in prison for Sean Barry and spared him an execution. Barry would be automatically eligible for parole when he turns 64 years old. Once all three trials were over, the Bird family stated they were able to receive closure and move on. Justice prevailed for their son in the eyes of the law, and they were looking to God to guide them through the understanding and peace that they craved. Once the reporters left and the protesters left, the town of Jasper was given back to the people. Although they were still hurt and mortified by what took place, they were able to grieve with one another and start the healing process. The case took a toll on all involved, especially the district attorney, Guy James Gray, and Sheriff Billy Rolls. They were happy to serve justice to the family, but it did come with consequences. They received multiple death threats, harassing phone calls, and suffered emotionally throughout the investigation and trials. But to them, it was worth it to serve justice on behalf of the Bird family and James Bird Jr. John William King was executed on April 24, 2019. He was 45 years old. Lawrence Brewer was executed on September 21, 2011. He was 44 years old. Sean Barry is still incarcerated in prison at the Ramsey Unit in Texas and is not eligible for parole until 2038. James Bird Jr. was a man, a person, and was someone who was loved and cared for by many. Although his death was extremely tragic, he was able to enact change that protected millions of people today. In 2009, the Matthew Shepard and James Bird Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act was enacted. That allowed investigators to investigate and prosecute hate crimes and make it a federal crime to cause bodily harm or injury to any person based on their race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, disability, or gender. In addition, the family of James Bird Jr. set up a foundation in his honor. It is an organization to promote racial healing and cultural diversity through educating our young children. Their motto is, Stop the Hate, Educate. If you wish to donate to their organization, please visit www.thebirdfoundation.org. That is www dot the bird spelled b-y-r-d foundation.org if you or someone you know has been a victim of a hate crime please contact your local authorities or you can call the department of justice at 1-800-225-5324 that is 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you for listening to this episode of Evil Olive. Take care. Until next time.